Podcasting from the Star Group, home of the iconic Dressable Lions. This is Beyond the Known, the podcast that takes you a step beyond what you know about business. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, president of the Star Group. On today's episode of Beyond the Known, our guest is Carmen Petrie, president and CEO of Sojourner Family Peace Center, Wisconsin's largest service provider for families dealing with domestic violence. Carmen, welcome to the program here today. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be here. Yeah, wonderful to have you here. Let's start with the impact of COVID-19. And I think statistics will show that domestic violence spikes during times of stress and economic hardship. How have the quarantine mandates affected those who live with an abusive partner from what you can see? You know, I'm delighted to have the conversation. It's a critical one, and it's important that we keep um, thinking about this issue as we are navigating our everyday lives. So thank you for having me on. You know, COVID has made life more difficult for all of us in a variety of ways. And what COVID has done for survivors of domestic violence is that it's created further isolation. It's sort of locked them down in their lives. So before COVID, you could go to work, you could go to church, you might have been allowed to do some social events, but you could be among other people and have a chance of someone intervening, right? You might be able to talk to EAP or a coworker might say, you know, are you doing all right, Carmen? I see that you don't look well, or I see that you've been injured. You might have a chance to connect with another human being in a way that they could open a door. And what COVID has done is it shut down all of those avenues. And it, in essence, for some survivors have trapped them with their abusers even more than they were before COVID. So we know that domestic violence happens in isolation and that abusers use isolation to keep victims connected to them and under their control. And COVID just plays right into that scenario by creating more isolation. And we worry about not only the physical isolation, but the desperation and despair it creates in in the lives of survivors. So we talk about this anecdotally in terms of you know, kind of the things that you're seeing, what that looks like, why home is not always a safe place, especially in a period of isolation like COVID-19. But if you were to put some quantifiable metrics behind this, what kind of statistics, I suppose, in terms of domestic abuse cases, has your organization seen in the Milwaukee area and in the state as a whole? Well, in Milwaukee in particular, the homicide, the domestic violence-related homicide has gone up about 100% under COVID. It was going up prior to COVID last fall. We noted that the domestic violence homicide rate, what that says to us is that women and some men are living in extremely lethal situations. And that's concerning for all of us. And I can talk about some of those lethality factors, but the homicide rate has shot up. Domestic violence is defined as it's not really a crime on its own. It's a crime that happens within a definition. It's a crime that happens between two people who live together, live together in the past or have a child in common. And so what we've seen this year is intimate partner violence homicide is certainly on the rise, but we've had more son to mother, brother to brother, brother to sister homicides as well. So we're concerned about that. We have less walk-in traffic. Prior to COVID, we would have, you know, 150 to 200 people in the building. And now we're at around 50 people. We kept the Family Peace Center open because we wanted people to know there was a place that they could come to in an emergency 24 hours. Our shelter is still operating. We had to reduce our census 
from 53 to 43 beds on any given night. We're consistently full. And we see less people calling out on our crisis hotline and more law enforcement referrals. We're very connected to a number of partners in the community. And what we hear at the neighborhood level is there's lots of violence happening. Person may or may not call law enforcement and there's this repeat cycle of violence that's happening and escalating in people's lives. So we're concerned about that. And I would venture to say, while I haven't had my eyes on the state, I would say they're probably struggling with the same kinds of statistics that we are. So increased violence, increased lethality, less people coming forward in the traditional ways. So it's, we're thinking about ways for us to you know, open new doorways for people who are, are trapped in violence. So you've been in this field for a while. I mean, the majority of your professional career has been fighting for a cause like this. So you've been around the block, you've seen a lot of things, you've been involved in a number of different organizations and movements to mitigate domestic violence. Have you ever seen anything quite like this current situation, Carmen? You know, it's interesting when you say that. For 36 years, I have always been an advocate and working to end violence in people's lives, primarily in the lives of women and kids. I've been at Sojourner 18, going on 19 years. I have never seen so many different levels of crisis happening. So it's not only, you know, we have COVID and the isolation and the lockdown that it's creating in survivors' lives and the inability for us to reach out to them in the ways that we were before. For instance, you might not be able to call the hotline because you're in the house with the abuser all the time and there's never an opportunity right, for you to be free. I have never seen so many different layers of complexity and challenges. So we have COVID. Prior to COVID, you know, we deal with clients who are at or below poverty. I worry about the tsunami that's coming around basic needs, housing, food. A lot of our clients are food insecure. And I worry about the mental health tsunami that's coming around the impact of living, not only in violence, but with this great uncertainty. So I have never seen so many layers of challenges at the same time. You know, I had a friend who said, every generation has its challenge. And I said, well, we have multiple challenges going on. We have unrest and the reckoning that is happening in this country around oppression and racism. We have, you know, the election and the division that's occurring in our country. And and some of the rhetoric is troubling uh, that we hear, you know, people being threatened and violence being sort of promoted in some instances, and then we have this public health crisis. So it's, I've never seen this happening where so many layers of challenges. And I think we're going to be dealing with this for years to come. So why domestic violence? I mean, of all the things that you could be associated with, of all the causes that you could be champion, you talked about doing this for 36 years now. Why domestic violence and why have you dedicated your life to this cause? Well, it wasn't my plan. You know, my plan was I was going to go to graduate school and I was going to be teaching in some university somewhere. We talked a little earlier. I have an English degree and a history background. and But I grew up in a violent home. And I know what it's like to live in fear and terror. I know what it's like to be trapped. I also worry about the kids, for instance. I was that kid who needed to go to school because what was happening at home was so difficult. It was a respite for me. And so I, my lived experience, I think, delivered me to this work very early. And when I was 22, I got into the nonprofit world and I 
have always felt like it was my obligation because people helped me thrive in spite of the violence that happened. But I owed them a debt of gratitude and I needed to pay it back. And so I've been lucky enough. I've been really lucky enough to do this work in the way that I do it. You know, I live at the front line with amazing people. You know, we have 84 people who work at Sojourner who day in, day out are holding space for others who are wounded. And so I can't imagine doing anything else most days. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine for every three or four really rewarding, fulfilling days, there's probably always that one that you just mm-hmm. can't shut it off. You take work home with you, and, and that can make the soul a little bit heavier on some days, I have to imagine. You had mentioned, Carmen, that individuals helped you, that people helped you when you were a child, when you were growing up, based on the experience that you encountered and you feel it incumbent upon yourself to pay that forward? That's a great question. I have this little sign. I have a bunch of inspirational quotes at my desk. And one of them is this quote that says, what is right with you is more powerful than anything that is wrong with you. And that's a quote from a young man who they asked him how he got through the adversity in his childhood. And that was his quote is the people who reflected to me that what was right with me was more powerful than what was wrong. So tangibly, you know, I can remember my second grade teacher, my third grade teacher, fourth grade teacher paying attention to me when I was going underwater. You know, teachers, pastors, friends, family, we have the power to really be a lifeline for other people when we see them, when we pay attention, and we love them. So I always had someone in my life that took the time, the extra time to say, I see you and I am not going to let you go under. This is hard, I understand. You know, nobody in my life really changed the circumstances very quickly. I grew up in a very small town in Louisiana, town called Cutoff, Louisiana. There were not many social services, but the people who took time to see me sort of helped me understand that I could get by and I could get through. So what we're saying to people right now during COVID, you could be that lifeline right? You could make a phone call to a friend or a loved one that you're concerned about or a coworker, not necessarily to say, hey, I know you're living in violence or that you're a victim and and I want to change it. I want you to leave. But to say, I see you, I'm thinking about you, I love you and I care about you. That can be enough to hold somebody up until they can get to the doorway that leads out of the violence. That's a good point, and I think that's an excellent segue into where I want to go next. You've heard the phrase used before, if you see something, say something, but sometimes we don't recognize what we're seeing, where somebody just might look tired or somebody has a bruise, like you said, and they, they're, they're able to explain it away. We don't want to be too intrusive. We don't want to meddle in individual's business, and then after the fact, we're kicking ourselves going, ah, oh, man, it was right in front of me, and I didn't recognize it. So I wonder, Carmen, for those listening that might have a friend, a family member, a loved one who they're suspecting might be in a potentially dangerous situation, could you share some red flags with us for how we can spot abuse and then potentially how to get help for that person? Sure. One of the things that's important in your question is, you know, we have grown up in a culture that basically says to us, what happens over there is none of our business, right? What happens in this house stays in this house. So there's been this cultural norm for us to sort of ignore what we see happening in the world as if we can't impact change. It's none of our business. 
and we need to stay out of it. And what's important about that belief is that we have to challenge that because other people are our business. Our family, our friends, our co-workers, they are our business. It is our responsibility to intervene when we see another human being being mistreated or hurt. I can't think of a higher responsibility in our lives. So I think we need to work in our minds to say, why do I believe that? Why do I think it's none of my business? What makes me uncomfortable about that? So you're beginning to challenge your own belief system around it. And then the other thing I would say is you need to practice getting comfortable in having a conversation with someone. And we can talk about that in a few minutes. Some of the red flags, of course, would be unexplained injuries, right? Someone who says has consistently a black eye or a bruise or things that when you ask them about it, the explanation doesn't match the injury that you see. Possessive and controlling partners who won't allow the person to live their own life independently. So some examples of that, I remembered early on in my career, I I worked with a young woman whose husband would drive her to work. So she's not allowed to drive. And if he did not like what she was wearing, he would go home, get another outfit for her and bring it back for her to change into. So controlling, excessive jealousy, extreme criticism, those things can be signs or red flags that a person is in trouble. So it can be subtle to severe. That's the other thing to understand about violence is that it isn't always severe and it can involve physical, sexual, mental, spiritual abuse. And it can be subtle, like name calling, right? I could criticize you every day of our relationship, call you a whore, you know, criticize your body, get others, get the kids involved in that criticism. You're no good. You're not a good mom. You're dumb. You're not all the way to you know, homicide. And in between, I could be punching, pushing, slapping, pinching, restraining you and controlling you. So there's something called the power and control wheel, which kind of goes over all the behaviors. But the red flags you should be looking for, as I said, unexplained injuries, excessive absenteeism, the person who's very vigilant about needing to get home, needing to control so they can be in, you know, not suffer the consequences of violence. And then a possessive jealousy and watch how abusers talk. They will, sometimes that'll be a sign as well, how they talk about other women, how they talk about people in their lives. You touched on this a little bit in your answer just a minute ago, and I was hoping you can kind of dive a little bit deeper. What role do employers and businesses play in helping to keep their employees safe from an abusive home or partner situation? Well, I would say two things about work first. Work is the most predictable place I can find you if I want to hurt you. So most of the mass shootings in this country have started out as domestic incidents and they spill over into the workplace. So work is a very predictable place for me to find you if I am an abuser that wants to inflict harm. And we've seen that play out in this country where we've had some mass shootings where abusers hurt their partners and then went into the workplace or like Vegas, you know, went in and committed that atrocious crime that happened and killed so many people. So work is vulnerable. And then also work is a respite, right? So employers can think, well, how can I decrease my vulnerability? And there are some ways to do that. Think number one, make it comfortable for survivors to talk to you. And you do that by providing training, putting resources in the environment and policies that let survivors know who work in your environment 
And I guarantee you, you have survivors right now who are employed in your company. Make it comfortable for them to come forward and ask for help, seek help. I can guarantee you, you're losing productivity because of this issue. We did studies with abusers who said, absolutely, I use company time and I use company property to harass the victim in my life. And so you're losing productivity, you're vulnerable because of security issues, and you have an opportunity to give respite and a way out to survivors. So that's a little crash course. We have a program called When Family Violence Comes to Work, which it does every day, where we work with employers. I think it's important for employers to think about how am I training my managers? Do I have a policy? You know, what am I saying about this issue in the environment? So years ago, we developed posters that employers could put in bathrooms with a little tear-off strip that gave them gave survivors resources. So that's how I would break down the employer opportunity. Thank you very much. Some really good information for employers and businesses to be mindful of. So if an individual right now who's hearing this is a victim of domestic violence and wants to seek some assistance in some way, can you share some resources for individuals that are currently in dangerous situations or even additionally know of someone who might be in a potentially dangerous situation? So what I would say, first of all, to anyone who is in a violent situation, I would like them to hear my words that what's happening to you is not your fault. And and it's not your fault, and we're here to help. You're not alone. So some of the ways that you can get help is we have a 24-hour hotline here in the Milwaukee area, 414-933-2722. There's also a national hotline that you can also call. You can put in domestic violence, and, and that number will pop up. I should know that by memory, but I don't. Our Family Peace Center website, www.familypeacecenter.org, has a number of resources on our website. You can download that. There's a number of our brochures. If you're a friend or family member, there is a brochure on our website called 10 Things You Can Do to Support Survivors. The first thing I would say to family members, I would say to survivors, we know it's hard. We know coming forward that you're afraid and that it's difficult, but there are people in your life who will help you. And to friends and family, we would say, we know it's hard. We know it's hard watching somebody you love suffer and struggle and not be able to control the situation. So first thing we'd say is, you know, acknowledge your own feelings about that. Get some care for yourself and then understand that you have a role to play, but ultimately the survivors deserve respect and autonomy and they have to make their own decisions that work for them in their own timing. So would also say thirdly to abusers, we know We believe that you deserve help and there is help available for you as well. So the Alma Center is a program here in the Milwaukee area, 265-0100 or Nevermore, which is run by Milwaukee Women's Center, has a batterers treatment program for people who are hurting others. So all three of those, you know, violence impacts all of us. It's a wound that we carry from generation to generation and it has to be dealt with. We have to heal it. And we need people who can help us do that healing. So just listening to you talk, this is a difficult conversation to have for sure, but it's a vitally important conversation to have, especially with the numbers that we're seeing due to the COVID pandemic and how we're kind of heading into these unprecedented waters. So the organization like Sojourner Family Peace Center is vitally important. It's necessary. 
And if somebody is interested in getting involved, I would argue that there's probably no better time than now to do that, just based on the need that you're articulating here. So if somebody wants to get involved with your organization, they want to volunteer, they want to donate, I guess a two-part question, A, what is the biggest need for your organization right now, Carmen? And if somebody wants to get involved, how would you recommend they go about doing that? So the first thing I would say, the most important thing people can do is educate themselves about this issue understand what the resources are, and become comfortable with talking to others about it. When you look at an organization, a nonprofit, this is not rocket science, we need time, treasure, or talent, right? So the treasure piece is we need money in order to continue the work that we're doing. So Sojourner raises, we need to raise three, about three million a year privately. So we get donations from a dollar all the way to, you know, 250,000 and everything in between. So if someone feels compelled, we certainly would welcome a donation. And for us, that's a relationship with you. We want your donation, but we want you to feel like you're investing in our work and we want to engage with you so you can understand the transformation you're making possible. We love to have people come to visit the center. So after COVID, we'd love to have people come in. We need people to volunteer. As I said, our shelter is still operating and our children's program is still operating. COVID has made that a little difficult. We have opportunities for volunteers on our hotline in various programs. And then we're always looking for talent, and that talent sometimes are skills we need for our board, right? So we take in-kind gifts. We have a list on our website. We're also on Amazon. If you want to look us up, you can look at our wish list. So we need diapers and formulas right now. We have an urgent need for coats, women's coats, larger sizes, women's coats, and large size pajamas for clients who are living with us. So that's like, as of yesterday, as I'm walking out, shelter staff said, hey, we're running out of coats for our adult clients. So we always have a running wish list though on our website. Excellent information. Yes. So if you're interested in getting involved, if you want to help the Sojourner Family Peace Center, please check out their website. Please take a look at their wish list. And again, this is a very important cause. So even if it's just uh, donating a, a couple of bucks or donating an hour of your time, that can certainly go a long way. Your organization is doing wonderful work. You're touching an awful lot of lives. People mm-hmm. are better because of the influence that you're having in the local and national community. Could you share a success story or two, obviously without giving away any personal information, just so our listeners can kind of hear the transformative impact that you're having on the lives of others? I'll tell a couple of stories. Before that, I'll say, you know, Nick Starr nominated us for an award and we got picked. We were the only program in the state of Wisconsin and we got $10,000. So, you know, when I talk about the treasure piece, it isn't only that you could write a personal check. Maybe you're associated with a company that has a giving philosophy, those kinds of things. And I was very proud of that award and that we were the only one that was selected. And I'm grateful to Nick. So, you know, it is not uncommon for me to go places and I'll have people kind of looking at me in the grocery store and they're like a little apprehensive and they come over and they say, are you Carmen Petrie? And I'm like, yes. And I'll have women say, you know, 20 years ago, I lived in your shelter. I now I work as a legal secretary and I lived in your shelter with my son and you saved my life, right? And nobody knows, nobody in my life knows that I'm a survivor, but if not for your shelter, I would not be here today. 
a staff person, we have something called a mission moment in all of our meetings. We start out with either a core value shout out or a mission moment. And a staff person had her lanyard from work. She went to the grocery store and the clerk said, don't you want a coupon for that ice that you want to buy? And the coworker was like, I'm not buying ice. And she slipped over a note to the coworker and the note said, Sojourner saved my life. And then she pulled the note back and she said, no, I guess that coupon won't work for you. And the staff person checked out. You know, this is hard work. It's heavy. But I tell you, to be able to stand at the, the intersection of and seeing people come out of violence and begin to live lives where they're thriving, that's a gift to be able to witness that and to be part of that. It really is incredible. We had a client who lived with us in the shelter and she had a six-year-old daughter. And this young woman is part of our advisory group. We have a, a survivor's advisory group. And she said she worried about what she was going to tell her daughter because she was in first grade. And she knew the kids would make fun of her daughter for living in a shelter. So she told her daughter they were living in a hotel. You know, and we have this beautiful building on the corner of Sixth and Walnut. And it is, you know, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And she was able to reframe that for her daughter. And to this day, when they drive by, her daughter's like, I want to stay at that hotel again. You know, we have a great children's area. So to be able to be part of people's transformation, their healing process, to witness that the human beings are incredible. We have incredible potential to heal, to harm, certainly, but to heal. And we get to witness that at Sojourner. Some very powerful stories there. And as I said, just further solidification to me, to our listeners, to the lives of the individuals that you've touched, that your organization is vital, it's necessary, and it's doing some truly incredible work. So I really appreciate you sharing that information with us here, Carmen. A little while ago, you had referenced how we need to start getting comfortable having conversations around domestic violence. That sounds good. Yep. I agree with you 100% for sure. But from a practitioner perspective, if somebody wants to start getting comfortable having these conversations, if they want to start stepping outside of their comfort zone, how specifically would you recommend that individuals go about starting to get more comfortable having difficult conversations around domestic violence? I think the first part is to get educated. You know, look at our website, look at the Women's Center and Waukesha's website, look at Milwaukee Women's Center. Almonds, you know, check out some of the resources and then practice with someone. You know, if there's somebody in your life that you feel close to, you know, say to them, I'm worried about so-and-so and and I'm trying to figure out how to have a conversation and then practice. You know, early on in my career, I was a sex educator, very early on in my career, and I had to talk with people about sex and that's an uncomfortable topic. And I had to practice using the words, using the vocabulary, practice the questions. It's no different. And, you know, it's, you have to get comfortable with, you have to understand the issue. You have to get anchored in why you want to get comfortable with the issue. So you're prepared, right? Because you care about others. You have a suspicion that somebody in your life is being hurt. And then you need to practice. And you also need to accept that, you know, it's not your responsibility to change things for other people, but I can be responsible for saying, I see you. I see that you're not doing well and I'm concerned. Can I help? And the person may say, no, why are you asking me that? Just don't take it personally. 
So educate yourself, understand what's motivating your desire to make a change in a person or people's lives, and then practice. So if you're an employer, bring in some trainers into your company that can work with your EAP and your HR department and your security department. You know, I talked about how lethality is such a concern and the vulnerability of workplaces. And there's a lot that employers can do. So at whatever level you are, educate, understand what's motivating your desire or your position and then practice. Some excellent advice, and I think we'd all be well served to heed that advice and implement some of those strategies to be sure. We talked about the impact that Sojourner Family Peace Center is having on individual lives as well as the community at large. But one of the other things is people are taking notice of what's going on over there. And Carmen, you strike me as a very humble, modest woman, so I will brag on you here for a second. But under your leadership, Sojourner received the Milwaukee Business Journal 2016 Project of the Year Award, the 2015 Milwaukee Business Times Nonprofit Excellence Award, and was named Professional Dimensions Charity Fund Partner 2015 to through 2017. On a personal level, Carmen, you were named Milwaukee Magazine's Most Influential Person in 2015 and was honored with the Sacagawea Award from Professional Dimensions in 2013. I can see you blush through the camera. Sorry to embarrass you here. But that is quite a lot of hardware, my friend. So obviously, you get leadership. You understand how to move an organization forward. You are a get-it-done kind of a lady. What would be some of your best practices and tips with respect to effective leadership, especially when it pertains to leading a nonprofit organization? Hmm. You know, we've been very blessed here at Sojourner, and I have been as an individual. So I would say, you know, stay true to what your core values are, understand what that is. There has not been a day that I've done this work that I haven't remembered the kid that I was and the adult that I needed, right? So I'm trying to be the adult and have this organization be what people need and keeping our eye on that. I would say core values, I pray, I meditate. I understand that this work is bigger than me which is why prayer and a higher power are important to me. And I talk about that. You know, I believe in the separation of church and state. I don't run my business with this philosophy, but it's how I live my life. And I show up that way because this is spiritual work. It's healing is sacred work. I'll say it that way. And so for me, I take time to get grounded in something bigger than myself every day. You know, I try to do an inventory of where I fall sharp. Try to clean that up pretty quickly. I'm not perfect. My staff would tell you that. <laughs> but I try to keep my core values. I try to be there for people. The most powerful thing for me, I say to staff, you know, we can give people a lot of information and we give them resources. But what they really want from us when they come is love and dignity and respect, right? I can give you a brochure. I can put you on the website. But if I don't love you, and hold space for you and give you dignity and respect, I have not moved you further, right? And so it's not what we do, it's how we do what we do that's critical to me as a leader. So I think there's nothing more important than leadership and how we show up. So that's my rambling answer to your question. Well, you may call it rambling. I call it insightful, to say the least. And I know we opened this conversation by talking about some of the 
issues in the world today, especially in the year 2020, to say that 2020 has been an interesting year would be the greatest understatement of all understatements from COVID, what's going on in the political world, to violence, to what we just talked about, about domestic violence at home. It kind of warms my heart and soul to think about how wonderful this world would be if we just followed those three words that Carmen just shared, love, dignity, and respect. If we could give love, dignity, and respect to each other, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, heck, to total strangers on the street, just imagine how much better this world would be. So that is, if you, again, if that's rambling, I'll take that rambling any day of the week. That was outstanding. You're right. The world would be very different, right? And it will be. I think we have an opportunity to make it, make it so. Be the change you want to see in the world kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I think what I would say, we live in a world that's constantly trying to tell us or convince us that we don't matter. And whoever you are listening to this, you matter immensely. You have the potential to make an incredible difference in the lives of people around you. Take that opportunity. You know, the I believe the answer to violence, the antidote to violence is human to human contact. And it doesn't matter what technology we create, we're never going to get rid of the need for each other. We're hardwired to need each other. And so if you take nothing away from this podcast, know that you make a difference and look for that opportunity to do that right now today. And if you're a survivor, I've already said, you know, it's not your fault. You're not alone. And we're here to help somebody in your life will help you. Keep seeking that help. Well, Carmen, you are making a difference in people's lives every single day. You've been making a difference in people's lives for the trajectory of your entire career. And for the last 45 minutes or so of this conversation, you've made a difference in the lives of our listeners. So it was a blessing to have you on the program. Carmen Petrie, president and CEO of Sojourner Family Peace Center. Thank you for being on the program and keep up the good work because you're doing truly amazing things, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Known with Paul M. Newberger. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out at stargroup.com. That's S-T-A-R-R group.com slash podcast. We're also available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.